Africa, rise and shine. Africa, zorka. Africa, amka na unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective and we're coming to you live in Johannesburg, South Africa. We are on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 11925 kHz on the 25 meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu, in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisolohoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, experts say refugee crisis will not stop unless root causes are addressed. And Greenpeace says climate deal reached in Poland does not go far enough. In economics news, U.S. accuses China of breaking World Trade Organization rules. And in sports news, Bangana Bangana coach makes changes for Netherlands and Sweden clashes. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Moussa, leader of the Lamuka Coalition in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Martin Fayolo has called for a national debate between contestants in the December 23rd elections. His call comes four days before the end of campaigning. He made the call via a Twitter post on Monday. The Lamuka Coalition comprises three aspirants and two banned hopefuls. The two are former Vice President Jean-Pierre Bemba and ex-Governor of Katanga Province, Moise Katumbi. Other major candidates in the official pool of 21 include a former Minister of Inter- Interior, Emmanuel Ramazani Shadre, running on the ticket of the ruling coalition, and Felix Tshikedi, son of a deceased veteran opposition leader, Etienne Tshikedi. A high-level meeting between Europe and Africa is due to open in Austria as leaders from the continent ga- uh, gather in Vienna. The event will be hosted by the Chancellor of Austria, Sebastian Kurz. The Africa-Europe High-Level Forum has in attendance leaders of the two continental blocs, the African Union and the European Union. AU President Paul Kagame is in Vienna along with Egyptian President Abdul Fattah al-Sisi and AU Commission Chair Musa Faki Mohamed. Kagame will co-chair the forum with the host who currently holds the rotating presidency of the EU Council. Five people have been killed in a village in western Kenya after residents resisted the arrest of a suspect in a domestic abuse case. A policeman has been arrested in connection with the deaths on Sunday evening. An independent investigation has been launched by police. Human rights uh, activists say the incident is one of many where Kenyans are taking the law into their hands because they have lost trust in the police force. The leader of Britain's opposition Labour Party, Jeremy Corbyn, has criticised Prime Minister Theresa May for rescheduling a delayed vote in Parliament on a Brexit deal until mid-January. Corbyn says she has led the country into a national crisis and that she no longer has the Cabinet's backing. Britain voted to leave the European Union in a shock referendum in 2016 and is set to leave on March the 29th next year. May has urged MPs to see Brexit through. 
I know this is not everyone's perfect deal. It is a compromise. But if we let the perfect be the enemy of the good, then we risk leaving the EU with no deal. Of course, of course we have prepared for no deal. And tomorrow the Cabinet will be discussing the next phase in ensuring that we are ready for that scenario. Two studies prepared for the U.S. Senate say Russian operatives used every major social media platform to help Donald Trump get elected president in 2016. The research says YouTube, Instagram and PayPal, as well as Facebook and Twitter, were leveraged to spread propaganda. The reports also say the Russian disinformation campaign continued to support Trump after he took office in January 2017. The BBC's Gary O'Donoghue reports. The studies describe how the now-notorious Russian-backed internet research agency dissected the American public, targeting groups by race, political persuasion and interests. The strategy sought to fire up those on the right, urging them towards confrontation and encouraging the spreading of conspiracy theories. While the messaging aimed at African Americans in particular was designed to suppress turnout, encourage dissent and undermine trust in institutions and process. On Sunday, the 23rd of December, Channel Africa will bring you news updates on the DRC's presidential election, as well as updates throughout the festive season. Tune into www.channelafrica.co.za or Channel 802 on the DSTV Audible K or Shortwave, Channel Africa, the African Perspective. That's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. The President of the UN General Assembly, Maria Fernande Espinosa, says until we tackle the issues presently driving 258 million people to leave their home countries, the world's refugee crisis will not stop. Following the General Assembly's affirmation at the Global Compact for Refugees and the adoption of the Global Compact for Migration last week, Espinosa explains how the compacts are mutually reinforcing for the people they serve. I think that Marrakesh was a great achievement for multilateralism, for the United Nations, but for the rights of people on the move. 258 million migrants around the world and uh, a roadmap 
that would foster collaboration, cooperation, exchange of good practices among countries of origin, of transit and destination. So I think it was a big achievement and now we have the challenge to implement the Global Compact. It is a non-legally binding framework but is going to encourage to deliver better on the rights of migrants around the world. The, the history of humanity is about the history of migration. And what can the UN do now? What more can the UN do now to help countries with implementation of the compact? Well, first of all, I think it's very important uh, to recall that the implementation of the compact is going to rely very much on the decisions taken by member states. Member states, and hopefully with the full participation of civil societies, of organizations of migrants uh, themselves around the world, and uh, the United Nations has put together the UN Network on Migration that is coordinated by IOM, the International Organization on Migration, with the participation of more than 20 UN agencies and programs, and they are going to support and transit together with member states for implementation with all their installed capacities, with the knowledge and experience of uh, UN agencies. And they're going to have, as a cross-cutting component of their work, the delivery and implementation of the Compact on Migration. So Marrakesh, big achievement of multilateralism of the United Nations, but above all, a big achievement that would, uh, will service and support the hundreds of millions of migrants around the world. And of course, not all states decided to adopt the pact. And there have been demonstrations, like in Brussels, for example, over the weekend, uh, in protest of the compact. So what would you say to skeptics? Well, the compact was adopted during the conference by consensus. And that is a great, uh, really, hope, but also a commitment to deliver on the compact and to the people, citizens, even governments that are not ready yet to join the compact, I would send a strong message. We need to read the content of the compact. It's 23 policy recommendations for countries to improve the way they address the issue of migration. Migration is not going to stop. It's part of the history of humanity. And I think that the compact provides this very useful framework, this uh, platform uh, roadmap for countries to uh, collaborate, to cooperate, to improve the way they address and look at international migration. International migration is by nature a transboundary issue. Uh, so I think that we have this policy framework with a compact and it is uh, you know, the decision of each country to see what is useful from the compact, what they can apply looking at their national legal frameworks, their constitutional frameworks, but it's going to foster cooperation. I think this is the beauty of the compact. And to the ones that are not yet prepared, my suggestion would be read the compact and look at the usefulness and the practical responses of these 23 policy recommendations under the compact. And uh, turning to the refugee compact, which was affirmed this morning by the General Assembly, what will be the specific benefits from this refugee compact? Well, I think that today it's a historical day for the United Nations, for the General Assembly. This morning uh, we voted upon the Global Compact on Refugees and it was adopted with an overwhelming voting in favor of the compact. 
Uh, this is also a framework, a non-legally binding framework that emerged after the 2016 uh, New York Declaration on Migration and Refugees. It was extensively consulted with, with member states and it provides a framework to improve the access of migrants to their fundamental rights access to education, access to health care, and it's improving also the uh, protection means for uh, these people that are forced to leave their home countries because of very critical situations, either because they are persecuted or because they are fleeing from war, from extreme conflict, from uh, uh, different sorts of discrimination. So these people are risking their lives. That's why they are forced to go to another country. And there are so many countries around the world that have open arms for uh, the refugees. So the compact, what it does is it creates a platform, a framework, also for burden sharing for uh, the, the host countries, the countries, the recipient countries of refugees. Uh, we have to say that more than 70% of the countries that receive refugees are middle-income and sometimes low-income countries that really have to deliver and to invest and to support these, these uh, peoples that, again, once again, they are risking their lives. So uh, the compact allows for greater collaboration, greater burden sharing, and increased protection and rights to the refugees, the 24 million refugees around the world. So today, 17th of December, it's a, a day to celebrate, to celebrate multilateralism, to celebrate the United Nations and the General Assembly, because we are delivering for the poorest and for the most vulnerable parts of society. That's Maria Fernandez Espinoza, President of the UN General Assembly, speaking to UN, Radio, UN Radio's Natalie Hutchison. Greenpeace Africa says the agreement that has been reached at the UN Climate Conference in Poland does not go far enough in preventing the dangerous effects of global warming. After two weeks of talks in the Polish city of Katowice, officials from around the world finally reached a consensus on a more detailed framework for the 2015 Paris Agreement, which aims to limit a rise in average world temperatures to well below 2 degrees Celsius, above pre-industrial levels. For more on this, Kumbela Mungelele spoke to Greenpeace Africa's Happy Kambule. One of the biggest issues that we've come out with is that the framework in itself isn't going far enough in order to detail what is necessary in order for us to take urgent action around climate change. I mean, the biggest outcome essentially is that there's a framework and countries more or less agree to a common set of rules in order to implement the Paris Agreement, but that those rules in themselves don't move countries forward and they do not provide for dealing with some of the more political issues that have always been in the negotiations, such as how do you then account for different countries' capabilities to address climate change. Now, according to the report by the United Nations Development Agency, UNDP, which was launched on the sidelines of the summit, Africa is at a tipping point. What do the outcomes of a COP24 summit mean for the African continent? Well, what they mean for the African continent is not necessarily addressing those issues that I identified in the UNDP report. But essentially what they mean is that African countries have more clarity now in what they need to do in order to access finance. 
Uh, they have more clarity about how the process of uh, gaining certain types of technology into the continent will happen, and also about building the better capacity of addressing climate change. But also what it also means is that African countries are given more, I don't want to say authority, but they're given more responsibility in order to do what they said they would do in terms of addressing climate change. In the, most, in, in, in the last regime around climate, international climate change governance, what we had is that developed countries like in Europe and in the North Americas, would be the ones that would be taking action and then facilitating that action in Africa. But this time is that African countries need to take the action and then get some form of support from developed country parties. The crunch conference, I suppose, will come in 2020 when countries must meet the deadline for the current emissions commitments and produce new targets for 2030 and beyond that go further towards meeting uh, scientific advice. Uh, Do you think talks are only going to be more fractious in the future or is there a light at the end of for the tunnel here, happy. The good thing about this is that it's a catch-22. The more the talks become fractured, the more we are likely uh, the issues that are really uh, at the base of this being addressed. Because if they're not fractured, it means that they're not dealing with the really contentious issues. So I would see the talks becoming more and more fractured. Not necessarily that people would believe in the talks, but it becomes more tense, uh, more tense due to the fact that the issues that are being discussed are becoming more and more sensitive. When countries are saying, look, we're already dealing with climate change right now, we need support to be able to deal with it, or you need to account for it in your next uh, target, so your target needs to be stronger. Those kinds of languages are the things that would get other countries a little bit worried, because then it changes how they should be doing their planning. But in terms of how the negotiations are going, it's a good thing that they continue going, and so much as the targets get stronger and action is taken. Now, there is also a school of thought doing the rounds happy that uh, until we confront uh, uh, capitalism, we will not solve the climate crisis. Is this also the view of uh, Greenpeace? Well, that is the view of, of Greenpeace largely. And the reason why we are engaged in this process, you were saying that while it is being dealt with, we shouldn't be forgetting about the people who are already being impacted by exploitation, by um, slave, uh, slave, uh, slave conditions or bad working conditions as well as being forgotten by the general economy. That's part of the idea that Greenpeace is engaging with, is that while we are dealing with this problem, do not forget the people who've been left behind. But also, this thing needs to end. But even if capitalism ends at this point in time uh, and we change to a new economic uh, pro- process, climate change is still happening. So we've already gotten the impact and we're already feeling the effects even if the system that created the problem is no longer there. So we still need to deal with the actual problem that is uh, climate change. That's Happy Kambule, climate and energy political advisor at Greenpeace Africa, speaking to Channel Africa's Kumbela Munjalele. The African Development Bank has donated one million U.S. dollars towards eradicating of cholera in Zimbabwe. The grant comes three months after the country was badly hit by a cholera outbreak in the capital Harare and 17 other districts and killed more than 50 people. More from our Harare-based correspondent, Simon Muchemo. In September this year, Zimbabwe's capital Harare was struck with a cholera outbreak that quickly spread to 17 other districts. At least 50 people died owing to drug shortages such that Zimbabwe declared the outbreak a national disaster. 
In Zimbabwe, cholera is mostly associated with poor sanitation, shortage of potable water, and contaminated boreholes. As such, the country expects the cholera cases to start increasing again owing to increased rains during this season and increased human traffic over Christmas. To avoid further cholera outbreaks and control its spread, the African Development Bank, AFDB, on Monday donated $1 million U.S. million towards the cause. Domati Kitabire, country manager, African Development Bank, said, And today's ceremony is evidence of our ability to re respond to our regional member countries' needs when required. In our view, this is a crisis worth fighting with all our available means, and we demonstrate that today with this grant of $1 million to be immediately disbursed through the World Health Organization to abate and control further spread of the disease. Distinguished ladies and gentlemen, this support to Zimbabwe will complement government's efforts and assistance by development partners, as well as the World Health Organization to avert a national and regional social and economic uh, catastrophe by making it possible to prevent further deaths from cholera, as well as containing its spread beyond the current affected areas. Cholera has become an emergency in Zimbabwe such that the Southern African Development Community, SADAC, is on high alert. The situation has been worsened by the fact that junior doctors have embarked on a strike that is so far threatened to cripple the country's health delivery system. World Health Organization country representative had this to say. As we all may remember, at the time the outbreak was confirmed, we were receiving over 2,000 new cases of cholera per week. Implementation of this plan, which included intensifying case uh, detection, disease surveillance, case management, improving access to safe water, educating communities, and vaccination has resulted in this outbreak being largely contained. As we meet here today, over 1.3 million people living in the highest affected areas were vaccinated against cholera. As a result of all these interventions, the outbreak has come down dramatically. As we meet here today, we are registering far less cases. Each week, we are still registering around 80 to 90 cases of cholera. The Zimbabwean Finance Minister, Dr. Mtuling Nguwe, said cholera is a hygiene disease, hence citizens are urged to exercise cleanliness during these rains. Dr. Mtuli confirmed there was poor planning around cholera leading to the outbreaks in the capital. Between 2008 and 2009, hundreds of citizens died when one of the worst cholera outbreaks in the history of the country struck some parts of Harare and surrounding towns. Despite previous events, Zimbabwe is still experiencing those outbreaks now and then. Dr. Mtuli made the following remarks. To this end, I'm grateful uh, for the grand aid support from the AFDB, which amounts to one million uh, US dollars to complement ongoing efforts by government to control the disease through, through the proposed cholera response strategy. 
distinguished guests, in summary, the support provides for the following. Uh, capacity building for 100 local authorities in water quality monitoring, uh, 300 village uh, health workers in participatory health hygiene uh, education and community education and communication as well. It will also cover the procurement of essential medical laboratory uh, protective and emergency response equipment supplies and finally cover the support to the Ministry of Health and Child Care uh, fields uh, monitoring activities. The fund will be administered over a period of 12 months through the WHO, which is a, a designated executing agency. In Harare, Zimbabwe for Channel Africa, this is Simon Muchemwa. Sunday, December the 23rd, is anticipated as the day on which the Democratic Republic of Congo, DRC, goes to national and presidential elections. Channel Africa will have special broadcasts in English, French and Kiswahili. So join us for this special event from 1000 hours to 1400 hours Central African time on the frequency 15170 on the 19 meter band and between 1700 hours to 1800 hours Central African time on the frequency 17770 on the 16 meter band. Channel Africa bringing you the DRC elections from an African perspective. The success of a group of South African cadets receiving a range of skills including engineering and aviation in Cuba is being attributed to their discipline and focus. This is despite the challenges of being in a foreign country. Cuba has been under a U.S. blockade for decades and life there isn't always easy. A foreign editor, Sophie Mugwena, just returned from Cuba and compiled this report. Cuba an island nation with a population of 11 million, the country that fought many battles, the Cuban Revolution, led by Fidel Castro and Che Guevara, free at last, but it's now fighting a new battle, sanctions imposed by the U.S. The military academy in Santiago is where South African cadets are being trained. They are fluent in Spanish. The students take us through the history of the institution, even though the country is struggling, it remains committed to internationalism, sharing skills with friends. The students here have had to make sacrifices under tough conditions. Um, it excites me being here. This is a great opportunity. Hence, um, I'm very honored to be here. I'm doing, currently doing medicine here in Cuba, but obviously I'm studying with my Spanish. Yeah, to study simulator development, currently busy with my Spanish courses. I'm enjoying my stay so far. We are at our best behavior and we, con we plan on continuing this even when we get to South Africa. I wish to be, to continue with doing this course so that I can be the future leader and take the skills that I'm acquiring here in Cuba. But they are undeterred by the challenges they are facing. Defense Minister Nosi Viwema Pisangagula. Seemingly the students are doing very well. Parecer, como usted dice, los están Looking resultados. at the average of their performance. We are very proud. Y de eso. 
Y eso es algo que le vamos a, a comunicar a ellos también. So that we can further motivate them para que también ellos eh, continúen estando motivados. Y sean, sigan su resistencia y su compromiso con la institución. And thank you to you, the staff. Muchas gracias a ustedes, al grupo de dirección de la escuela. We know that it's not easy Sabemos que no es fácil to deal with people, para lidiar con personas people. jóvenes. No le digo solo de mi país, sino del mundo entero. No es fácil lidiar con muchachos jóvenes. Remember the group you are dealing with here is uh, what we call in South Africa the born freeze. Nosotros esos muchachos que ustedes tienen hoy en la escuela, nosotros allá le, le, le decimos que nacieron libres. Young people really who have uh, some of them who don't quite have an appreciation. Algunos de ellos tienen un alto aprecio of how they find themselves here today. The challenges they are facing ranges from transport when they are emergencies back home, transport when they have to attend practicals away from the university, and the culture shock. South African Defense Force personnel says concerns will be attended to. The other thorny issue is ill-discipline. The Army Chief says this won't be tolerated in the Defense Force. Lindy Leyam, Chief of the Army. Let me assure you, as a South African yourself, that is one line will never compromise. Not even one line will never compromise. Military discipline means just that. Resolute military discipline. An iron discipline which is conscious, uh, which is much conscious and based on our voluntarism. Cuba has its own hurdles to overcome, but is always willing to help Africa, its ally. Sofim Gwen, SABC News. Remembering Mama Albertina Sisulu. We will say whatever we are expected to say by the people, and we are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the people. We are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the liberation of the oppressed people of this country. Hashtag Mama Sisulu Centenary. Channel Africa. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A 
A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa, the headlines leader of the Lamuka Coalition in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Martin Fayolo has called for a national debate between contestants in the December 23rd elections. Fighting has erupted again around the Yemeni port of Adeda after United Nations broke its ceasefire failed to take hold. And a Nigerian professor has been handed a two-year jail term in a six-for-grades case. Those are the stories making headlines. South African retail giant Edgar On says reports that its stores are about to close are not true. The closure of the stores would have resulted in thousands of employees losing their jobs. A Sunday Times article says a financially troubled group is on the brink of collapse, putting the jobs of 140,000 workers on the line. Edcon owners Edgar's Jet and Edcon owns Edgar's Jet and CNA. Wisani Makubela reports. Edcon CEO Grant Pettison admits that the company has been experiencing financial difficulties for several years, but he says plans are in place to stabilize the situation. There is an article out indicating that Edcon is about to close and cause all those job losses. This is incorrect. What we're doing at the moment is we're just about to conclude a deal which will see the recapitalization of Edcon. Its financial problems are well, widely reported and been going on for several years. And we think we're just about to reach a deal where we could see the company recapitalized and stabilized for the next few years. The company has reportedly approached shopping mall owners and government for aid in the form of rental discounts and investments. The report further says Edcon is in need of 2 billion rand emergency funding from its owners as well as the state-owned public investment corporation PIC. However, the CEO says they are in the final stages of completing a deal to recapitalize Edcon and to restore it to its former glory. He did not reveal the details of the deal. The details of who is funding what are not finalized yet and are subject to confidentiality. So I'm not able to comment until the deal is finally finalized. We've been communicating for some time now that we need to raise extra cash for Edcon. We need about a billion rand in the next year and thereafter maybe another two billion rand. We've approached all stakeholders, every stakeholder in the group and asked them for help. And we've been quite encouraged by the support we received from all stakeholders. Trade Union Federation SAFTU says it would be a national disaster if 140,000 Edcon workers were to lose their jobs, spokesperson Patrick Craven. It would make all the other pending uh, job losses fade into insignificance and will have a huge effect on not just the individuals, obviously, but on the economy as a whole. And we believe that urgent action must be taken by the government. We cannot rely in the uh, the owners of the shopping malls or other business organizations to uh, step in. It clearly is now a national disaster. However, Peterson has appealed to Edcon employees not to panic over reports he describes as speculation. My message would be firstly to thank them for uh, the hard work and long hours over this Christmas period and then let them know... Uh, Don't uh, worry about the speculation in the newspapers. When there is something about the company that they need to know, I'll communicate it to them directly. And for the moment, uh, we are close to finalizing a deal that should ensure the future of the company. That report by Wissani Makumele in Johannesburg.
South Africa's first solar-powered desalination plant is ready to start pumping water to residents of Witstand in the Western Cape province. The project is a collaboration between the Western Cape and French government. The plant is set to help the small town in the Hasakua Hasakua municipality, which regularly faces water challenges. Segrichetti has more. Using innovative technology, the plant, which harnesses the sun's energy, is the first of its kind on the continent. Vitsand is one of many small towns in the region feeling the impact of the drought. Located close to the Breda River mouth, it will churn out 73 kilowatts of power to convert seawater to drinking water. The plant took six weeks to be built. Project manager Patrice Boye explains how it will operate. Basically, it's the very first plant actually in South Africa and, and, and extensively in Africa who is going to produce drinkable water from seawater with solar energy only, no batteries. So it's the first in Africa. And so far it will be the biggest one in the world because it's going to produce 100 kiloliters of drinkable water per day. During December, the popular seaside holiday destination swells from 500 to over 5,000 people. In the past, there's been frequent water shortages during both peak and off-peak season. Resident Joe Attenborough says the plant will make a difference to the town. It's a positive move um, in terms of supplementing water that used to be a problem during the festive season in the past. Um, The town is kind of only geared up for X amount of people for a regular water supply. And over the past, over the many years going back, we inevitably end up having a problem of no water. The Western Cape and French governments contributed 9 million rand in total towards the plant. Western Cape Finance MEC Ivan Mayer has held the partnership. The first type of desalination plant in the world that uses also sun energy, solar energy, and we are particularly happy that this project will bring water security. Jean-Baptiste Dabezis from the French Department of Economic Affairs says they're excited to be part of the project. Basically, uh, we were able to fund half of the of this demonstration pilot project uh, in order to prove uh, to prove that uh, this technology can um, exist here in Africa. The Southern Cape also boasts the country's first solar-powered airport and municipality. I'm Segui in Vitsand in the Southern Cape. Remembering Mama Albertina Sisulu. We will say whatever we are expected to say by the people. And we are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the people. We are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the liberation of the oppressed people of this country. Channel Africa. The livestock industry is responsible for a staggering amount of greenhouse gas emissions with a single beef burger taking up to 450 gallons of water to produce. The UN is ramping up awareness on the issue and two companies who make plant-based meat alternatives to beef were recently named Champions of the Earth by the UN Environment Programme in recognition of their contribution to more sustainable eating. UN Radio's Connor Lennon 
went along to see how the new generation of meat-free meals are going down with the notoriously hard-to-please burger-loving public of New York City. The key impacts are many folds. Um, as you know, meat uh, production is very resource-intensive in terms of water. It also has a large amount of greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, meat production also requires large uh, swaths of land. So in some parts of the world, this space is created by uh, mowing down forests and clearing agricultural land. So that in itself uh, is a pressure on the already stressed resources of uh, the planet. And that brings us nicely back to, yes, plant-based meat or impossible foods or beyond meat. The last two are actually the names of real companies based in the U.S. producing real or rather unreal meat. And they've both been named Champions of the Earth. That's the highest U.N. environmental honour. Rather than producing the kind of veggie burgers and patties that have been around for a while... They've taken a more scientific approach, stripping down the basic building blocks of meat to protein, fat, water and trace minerals and recreating a kind of meat substitute entirely from plants at a fraction of the cost to the environment. Jamil Ahmad again. They were chosen because they have done some pioneering work in trying to introduce the concept of plant-based food. And that is something that we need more and more to make awareness about how we can uh, still enjoy our meals without intensely using meat products. UN Environment uh, organized a campaign uh, on food waste and food loss, uh, which also focused on how we can reduce food loss and food waste by trying to move away from uh, extensive uh, use of meat. But is anyone actually eating this stuff? To find out for myself, I travelled downtown to one of the restaurants of the Bear Burger chain, which are dotted around New York City and beyond. I caught up with Rudy Ramos. He's the vegan culinary director of Bear Burger. I caught up with Rudy Ramos. He's the vegan culinary director of Bear Burger. And I asked him what's different about Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat. These companies are just looking at what a quote-unquote veggie burger is and what it can be. Um, they're, they're, the building blocks are different. I think when, when, I mean, me personally being a chef, making re- veggie burgers the whole time I've been a chef, thinking about vegetables and how they, how they bring texture and how they respond well to searing, those things when I would make a veggie burger. Um, I always thought about it in terms of little pieces of vegetables coming together to form a patty, right? Um, and that's how I've always thought about it. Even the early quote-unquote veggie burgers that were made from soy that had sort of a tearaway mouthfeel, um, they still focused on um, the idea that uh, you want a veggie burger to have this certain texture. I think what Impossible and Beyond came and did was said, no, let's break it down to really a molecular level. Let's see why we crave meat. Let's break down everything that a meat burger has and let's build it back from the ground up. Okay, so we're in the kitchens now. Yes, we're in the So tell, tell me what we're looking at here. So right now, side by side, I have to my right the Beyond Burger and to my left is the Impossible Burger. The Beyond, you can see, is a little more patty form. Uh, the Impossible here is a little more rustic. And the Impossible on my left is actually a little thicker on the inside, so that way if someone wanted to have a 
medium or medium rare impossible to have uh, sort of that bleeding heme. Um, they can have that. So just like with meat, medium rare, rare, you can have uh, the same texture, the same feel. You can have the same texture and the same feel. Um, tell me, what kind of reactions of customers, tell me the kind of things they say, like they've eaten it for the first time, you've got some hardcore red, red meat eaters out there? I really think it depends on how open someone is. If someone's coming specifically to try these proteins and they're excited because they want to try something new, I think they're going to have a more open mind and I truly think that they, they will enjoy it. One of the great things about these proteins is um, the way that they sear. Something like a veggie burger, when you put it on the grill, it's going to, it's going to crisp up a little. And, um, but what these do is these sear. Where we are at in terms of food, there's an explosion of plant-based options in our grocery aisle. Me personally being vegan for a long time, you know, I, I went through those times where I would eat with my family or I would eat with my friends in non-vegan establishments and I always, was always stuck with something that was an afterthought, right? So uh, it was either salad or french fries. I'm not a big fan of salads anymore. <laughs> Had too many in my life. Are you seeing that attitudes to meat are changing? I think so. I even see it in, in the company that I work for. A lot of the people that work for headquarters, you see that they're, they're actually not just eating burgers every day. The, the company that I work for, they will routinely, people within the company, will eat the impossible. They will eat the beyond. They will have salads. They're reducing their meat intake. When, you, when you're getting reactions from customers or, or from even the people who you work with, is this for health reasons? Is it because of the fears about the environmental cost of meat? We all know that Red meat in particular uses a huge amount of water, resources, and uh, many people, including at the UN, are saying that this is not environmentally sustainable. Yeah, I think it's a combination of things. I think it's a combination of the things that you mentioned. Yes, people do want, people, we see people being more healthy, um, and we see people thinking about the environment, thinking about climate change, thinking about sustainability, and thinking about um, the resources that we use and how we may or may not abuse them. I was speaking to Rudy Ramos, the vegan culinary director of the Bear Burger restaurant chain. That report by the UN Radio's Connor Lennon. Our economics update's up next with Tabi Solohoku. Good morning. The United States U.S. has accused China of breaking World Trade Organization WTO rules and seeking to harm foreign industries. Reacting to a WTO review, the U.S. says Beijing is not willing to follow through on some of its commitments. U.S. President Donald Trump and his Chinese counterpart Xi Jinping agreed earlier this month to stop escalating tit-for-tat tariffs on billions of dollars worth of goods between the world's two biggest economies. But experts say this will only bring Beijing and Washington back to their pre-trade war status quo. The BBC's Andrew Walker reports. 
The more combative approach to trade policy taken by President Trump's administration is probably the most significant recent development in the WTO. China has been the main, though not only, target of US concerns, which was set out in a response to a review of American trade policies by WTO staff. The US said that China had shown willingness to take modest steps to address isolated issues. China, the US paper said, would sometimes make broad commitments when pressed at very high levels, probably a reference to meetings between Presidents Trump and Xi, but had not been prepared to follow through. South Africa's clothing workers' union, SACTU, has expressed concern about Adkins financial woes. Adcon, which owns a CNA, Adkins and Jet is seeking $52 million US dollars in emergency funding from its owners and state-owned public investment corporation. Chief Executive Officer Grant Patterson has said they're hoping for a deal before Christmas. Around 40,000 direct and 100,000 indirect jobs may be shed if the retailer collapses. Saktu's National Industrial Policy Officer, Adrian Flock, says that they're hoping Eskom, or rather, Edcon, will survive and all jobs will be retained. We are optimistic that a deal may be concluded. We've been briefed about um, uh, developments and, and, and we, we hope that this, um, any possible liquidation or, or closure of Edcon could be averted. We, we are very concerned about it. Our, our members work in the factories, in the clothing uh, factories owned by Edcon. And um, our members also supply products sold at Edcon. So, so we would be extremely concerned should the, the, the company close. Meanwhile, Flock says it's crucial that the deal be concluded as soon as possible because their members need to have some stability. First needs to be concluded before one can share anything, you know, about it. We understand that it's at a, a stage where, where hopefully it won't take long to be concluded. And um, you know, for, for us, it's important that it be done as quickly as possible. For for several years now, our members um, who who are employed by Econ have have um, had great uncertainty about their jobs. You know, for several years, Edcon has kind of um, moved between, you know, possible closure and then stabilizing slightly, and then possible liquidation and stabilizing again. Namibian President Hey Gengob says that the government is not to blame for the negative economic growth that the country has been experiencing for the past three years. Namibia entered into a depression after experiencing 10 consecutive quarters of negative economic growth following a technical recession registered in 2016. Gengob said the government made mistakes in some aspects about the crisis. Was it global problems that negatively affected the local economy? Imperial Bank depositors will now have to open accounts with Kenya Commercial Bank ahead of next week's partial payment of their money stuck in the collapsed lender. The Kenya Deposit Insurance Corporation says all eligible depositors will access 12.7% of deposit balances through KCB. This change means that only depositors who have claimed in the past through KCB and still have their accounts active will not be required to open new accounts and fill claim forms to receive the new tranche of deposit refunds. The US dollar is trading at 1052 Botswana Pula, 1196 Zambian Guacha. 
In BRICS currencies, as the US dollar is trading at 390 Brazilian roll, at 66.63 Russian ruble, and at 71.49 Indian rupee. 6.89 Chinese yuan, 14.37 dollars to the South African rand. It's also trading at 79 pence to the British pound, 88 cents to the euro. Gold is trading at 1,248 dollars. Platinum, 7.91 dollars pounds. The price of Brent crude oil is at 58 dollars. 95 cents a barrel from an African perspective. A sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. First up in our sports update, we're betting off with cricket news. Pakistan's batsmen will seek form when they open their tour of South Africa with a three-day match against a South African Invitation Eleven at Wilmore Park in Benoni, east of Johannesburg, tomorrow. It is the only game for the tourists before the first of three tests that starts in Centurion on the 26th of December. Pakistan twice suffered fourth innings betting collapses in losing a recent test series against New Zealand in the United Arab Emirates. Both captain Safraz Ahmed and coach Mickey Arthur acknowledged on the arrival in South Africa that posting competitive totals was crucial if they are to match the host in what is shaping as a battle between two teams with strong bowling attacks. On to football news, South African national women football team Banyana Banyana coach Desri Ellis has announced a squad of 26 players to feature in two international friendly matches early in the year against the Netherlands and Sweden in Cape Town. Both matches will kickstart preparations for the 2019 Women's World Cup tournament, which takes place from the 7th of June to the 17th of July in France. Ellis has kept the bulk of the squad that participated in the 2018 Women's AFCON in Ghana earlier in this year, this month, and saw Banyana Banyana qualify for the first ever World Cup. Two players have been omitted, with seven brought in. Mañana will first take on Netherlands in the Winnie Mantikizela Mandela inauguration challenge on the 19th of January at the Cape Town Stadium. A closed-door training match against Sweden will precede this clash and will be played on the 17th of January. Three days later, Tuesday, they face Sweden at the same venue. And on football news, we continue to tell you that the news Head coach, the new one of Kenyan Premier League champions Gormahia, Hassan Okte, is not an entirely happy man. Despite his side beating Nigeria's Lobby Stars 3-1 in the first leg of the preliminary round of the Cape Champions League in Nairobi. With that win, Gormahia put themselves in good stead to sail into the lucrative group stage of the Cape Champions League. But the Turkish Cypriot turned Brighton tactician believes the number of missed chances to extend the lead may be very costly in return of this second leg this coming Friday. Sometimes if you got players you can block the games, you can get compactness from the back four, the midfield, and then you can go to break uh, contra-attacks, you can get a result. 3-1 winning, why should I to open uh, to play open football? Because they play a long ball, they've got more chance to win the second ball and they can punish us. 
tactically work. We kept the free one. We should have scored another two. We have, I have to be a positive. Okay, I'm not happy, but I'm positive. In rugby news, Rugby Australia Chief Executive Raylene Castle says they have responded to the West Test Champ campaign in 60 years by appointing Scott Johnson as Director of Rugby over retained head coach Michael Chaker. We are very pleased to have secured Scott Johnson's services. He has built a strong reputation in the international rugby landscape over more than a decade. And since taking over as Director of Rugby in Scotland, the national team has climbed to the highest ever world ranking of 5th from a position of 12th. Chaker has been under intense pressure after the Wallabies won just 4 or 13 tests and slumped to 6th in the world rankings in a year when coaches would be looking to set out their stall ahead of next year's Rugby World Cup in Japan. We are confident that Michael is the right man to lead the Wallabies into the Rugby World Cup and the appointment of Scott Johnson will support Michael and his coaching team as they prepare for the tournament in Japan next September. That's your Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine. For today, experts say refugee crisis will not stop unless root causes are addressed. And Greenpeace says climate deal reached in Poland does not go far enough. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumutu Ramagadza and Jane Rabutata, technical producer Revelino Ibrahim and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us.